Over the last several weeks, <clears throat> we have been reading in the Hebrew Bible uh, the stories of the great patriarchs and matriarchs. I think last week, or maybe the week before, we were introduced to Moses, who we will read about again this week in his uh, instruction to the people of Israel about the Passover. And in Matthew's Gospel, we have um, a very good passage about discipline. I thought, gee, returning from vacation, and I've got to preach on discipline. That could be a non-starter, uh, but we'll try it anyway. Here's how I want to get into this. I want to say some things to you uh, about what Episcopalians believe about what is authoritative in our common life as Christian people, and use that as a segue into uh, the story in Exodus about the Passover, and then to talk about um, clean dealings in community life, which is what uh, Matthew's Gospel uh, is all about, and maybe some things about where uh, this teaching came from and its origins from, from the Savior, but where he may have got it uh, in a way that would resonate with the people he was speaking to and with. In the Episcopal Church, we believe that there are three things that we understand to be authoritative in our common life. They are the Holy Scriptures, the tradition with a capital T, and our human reason and experience. And these three things are the standard by which we measure what it is we think is true and right about our core beliefs, and for that matter, about the disciplinary questions that are always in front of a community as it seeks to live and be faithful. My own personal opinion is that in the Episcopal Church, the difficulties that we have been experiencing over the past few years have to do primarily with differences about disciplinary questions that don't press on the core beliefs of Christianity as we receive them and understand them as Anglican Christians. And by that I mean the doctrine of the Trinity, whether the bread and the wine become Jesus' body and blood, whether he rose from the dead, and other things that are absolutely essential to our common life together. But whether the clergy may marry or women may be priests or we give uh, a fair and equal shake to gay and lesbian and transgendered people, those are disciplinary questions. And we need to see them as that, as we proceed to determine how to live faithfully. Some people like to talk about scripture, tradition, and reason as a pyramid like this. So you put the scripture on the top of the pyramid and tradition here and reason and experience over here, rather than scripture, tradition, and reason. And here's the thing that you and I must always remember and keep in mind. The church is prior to the scriptures. The church is prior to the scriptures. In the second century, in the common era, Three things emerged, which emerged for the purpose 
of bringing some sense of connection and stability to the disparate churches in the Christian world, geographically, culturally, and otherwise, to enforce and, and, and um, keep a sense of connection and an understanding of what is essential and what is non-essential. And these are the three things, in order of appearance. The Episcopate, Episcopal government, the baptismal creed, which we call the Apostles' Creed in in our liturgy. We say the Nicene Creed on Sunday. We say the Apostles' Creed in the daily offices and in other parts of our liturgical life in the church. And the third thing was the canon of the Holy Scriptures, last. So it's fair to say that the Bible and the tradition with the capital T are on a parallel track as they come into now the church's common life. The Bible is the written record of what it is we have been doing as a people in, the, in our lived experience. Prosper of Aquitaine in the 5th century uh, coined the phrase that uh, Anglican Christians have always used since the beginning of their expression of Christianity. Lex orendi, lex credendi, the law of prayer is the law of belief. So what Christians have been praying and doing in their liturgical life and in their common life as a community is the source for our theological understanding of who we are and what we believe to be important. That must always be kept in mind. I mention this because we're going to move now to a discussion of instructions about the Passover from Moses and how we might understand that and how you see how the biblical witness is going to inform the already pre-existing practice. So here's a little background. Remember, I'm always operating on the basis of my teacher, O.C. Edwards, one of my New Testament professors. It is important what the Bible means not as much what it says. Moses is describing one of the national events of the people of Israel. What is being described here is embellished with sentiment and many years afterwards, looking in hindsight, on these events. What was the situation on the ground? Moses is giving the people of Israel and Egypt instructions about what they are to do to avoid the angel of death. It is the last of the plagues. And he gives them instructions about this great national event that will be talked about and talked about and talked about and talked about. And it reads like he's speaking to them from the liturgical manual of how to do Passover. Well, what would that mean? 
Well, it might mean that there is a tradition of doing the Passover prior to this story being recorded. Most biblical scholars would tell you that the Pentateuch, the Torah, was written during the Babylonian captivity in the 500s. And we're describing events that took place about 12 or 1300 B.C. And so that means that, at the very least, uh, we're talking about something that had been about 40 or 41 times done before anything was written down about it. You know, I mean, they had to sort of get rolling with how you do the, the Passover. By the way, I didn't mention this. This is when we're talking about the deep traditions of Christian faith and belief, we don't mean that uh, we believe in traditionalism. You know, many of us are different. Some do change better than others, right? Some don't like it. Some are very uneasy and anxious. And there are other people who are so anxious to change it makes your head spin. Right? So that's, you know, what makes horse races. That's the way people are about stuff. But we believe that tradition is living, which means that each of us must engage the tradition as a living entity as we live, not for the purpose of remaking it continuously, but also not understanding it merely as rigid traditionalism because we need to do some inquiry about the source and origin of many of the traditions. The Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour in the 1960s had a writer, some of you may remember, named Mason Williams. Mason Williams, one time on the Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour, talked about tradition. And he said, you know, when I, uh, about a year ago, I was at my sister's house. And she was cooking a leg of lamb. And when I was in the kitchen while she was doing this, I noticed that she cut the tendon on the long bone on the leg of lamb and then bent it like this and put it in the pan. And I said, why do you, why do, you do that? And she said, well, when I was a little girl and mother made a, a leg of lamb, uh, she always uh, fixed the lamb this way and bent the, the bone back and put it in the pot, the pan. So as luck would have it, about three weeks later, he was at his mother's house and she was cooking a leg of lamb. And he was in the kitchen and noticed that his mother cut this, the tendon, put the bone back like this and put it in the pan. And he said, Mom, why do you do that? And she said, well, when I was a girl, your grandmother always cooked a leg of lamb like this. And as luck would have it, he was at his grandmother's house about two or three weeks later, and she was cooking a leg of lamb, and she cut the tendon and turned the thing back and put the lamb in the pan. And he said, Grandma, why do you do that? And she said, Well, you know, Mason, when your grandfather and I were first married, we didn't have a lot of money. And so I only had one roasting pan and it wouldn't allow the leg of lamb to be set in with the bone the way it is. I always had to cut it and turn it back. Right? Sounds like the birth of a tradition to me. 
because I can hear people from my family, you always do that when you want to cook a leg of lamb, right? That's what it becomes. That's how you do this. It isn't like, well, some do, or if you don't have a pan big enough, no, 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 right? So we have to be careful about some of these traditions. The story of the Passover and what to do is a story about how people now faithfully have replicated this. But there's another point that's being made in the text and in the understanding of the tradition. And that is that the traditions develop as we move on the way. The people of Israel celebrated Passover 41 times when they were wandering in the wilderness. And so they were given instructions initially to dress in such a way. It's like you're ready to go to work. You got to go to work and it's raining outside cats and dogs. And you got your raincoat on and your hat on. And you're eating your scrambled eggs over the sink so that you can get out of there and get moving. Right? But there's something else in this, and that is that it is a metaphor for understanding that as we come to grips with our traditions and our faithfulness and our sense of connection with those who have come before, the tradition involves past, present, and future, doesn't it? So it involves in some way how we move through this and how we think and reflect about these processes. And that's why when you and I do the same thing here over and over again, little different things occur to us from time to time in the middle of it. They may just pop into your head quickly and go away. But that's what happens uh, as we seek to be faithful in a, in a living tradition, which becomes then a container for our own spiritual yearnings and desires. In the reading from Matthew's Gospel... We have a story. By the way, this is one of the two places in the New Testament where we have mention of the word church. Ecclesia in Greek. And it occurs two times in this passage and I think one other place in Matthew's Gospel. I have, from my seminary days, I have this book by a guy named Sabe Kubo. And I can't remember the title of it, um, but what it is, is every Greek word in the New Testament and how many times it occurs. So, you you know, you can look look up a Greek word like koinonia, and it'll tell you, oh, well, that occurs, you know, 68 times, right? So, ecclesia, which is the word for church, occurs two or three times. So, you know that it doesn't something that was a term that was frequently used. It makes sense that it's used in Matthew's gospel because by that time, that community was beginning to think of itself as ecclesia, the community. And it meant not just those who are from the people of the covenant, but Gentiles and tax collectors and everybody else in the assembly. Jesus is giving uh, instructions about a couple of things. One is that he's giving now the power of the keys, uh, the ability to forgive sins, to practice forgiveness within the community. He's giving the keys 
to everybody in this passage before he gave the keys to Peter. Right? What are the keys? Whatsoever sins ye retain on earth are retained in heaven. Whatsoever sins ye forgive on earth are forgiven in heaven. That's the keys. The keys to the kingdom. To bind and to loose. So the keys are not merely the private possession of the Petrine office, as they would say in fancy terms. You and I possess the ability to forgive. And it's a good thing that we do. But Jesus is also talking here about something that comes up over and over again, and that's how we uh, deal cleanly with one another in community life and how we bring some species of transparency and uh, accountability to what it is that we do. If you want to know and go back to where maybe Jesus got this, or when he was speaking about it in a way that would resonate with the people that were listening to him, you may need to go to the Dead Sea Scrolls community at Qumran and read their community rule. And in their community rule, you'll read something about how you're supposed to deal with wayward members, or I would suggest difficult members. Most people today in the Christian church, and for a long, long time, except some kind of fever-swamped sects, aren't uh, having little groups appointed to go around and to tell all of us that we have to straighten up and fly right. You know, We prefer gossip. We prefer silent indignation. We prefer just uh, le- leaving something alone and letting it fester as opposed to being open about it. I I, um, was at Barnes & Noble during my vacation, and I was in the business section of the bookstore, and I saw under the in the management section a book, Dealing or Working with Difficult People. I didn't buy it, but I might. It might, it might serve, you know, you never, you never know what to do. But you know, the church has erred often uh, for not bringing integrity and accountability in its relational life. And there are always people who are ready and willing and quick to point out the shortcomings of others, that's not what I mean. Or whether or not somebody's lived up to some disciplinary Uh, thing or a certain practice or whatever it is or what you must do to be a faithful Episcopalian or what uh, personal acts of piety you must engage in in order to be uh, really inside this deal and so forth. Those are all things that have been with us for a long, long time. But serious questions where there have been people who have been injured by the way in which the church has worked and no one said anything about it or they haven't believed them. And this is a a passage about you need to do this, you need to have some way of of handling this. Uh, You can't let people just gossip and say things and make innuendos without substantiating them. You can't have people just say stuff and not go to the person they're talking about and tell them. 
Those are the kinds of behaviors that cause great difficulty. And all of us, in big and small ways, have experienced this in the church's life. You know? People just blithely do this stuff instead of being accountable. And, you know, most of the time when we get religion on this subject, it's when there's a world-class conflict going on and you've got to bring an outside person in in order to say, here are the rules about how we're all going to get along during this period. Right? We're going to bring to bear some of these suggestions in Matthew's gospel, and we're going to, we're going to do that. And you need to all faithfully abide by this, or if you don't, you know. I, I talk about him all the time, but before I came to St. Luke's, I was at a seminar that was conducted by Edwin Friedman in the Diocese of California. And he was talking about, uh, you know, uh, he wrote a famous book called um, Family Process in Church and Synagogue. And he was talking about how, you know, communities go through change, dealing with their traditions, moving in a different direction, doing uh, different kinds of things, how you manage that, what it is that, that's involved. And um, somebody said, uh, raised their hand and said to him, Dr. Friedman, what if you do, if, you wanted, if you're trying to do something, or they're, the, the major, they're trying to do something, and it's just resisted, 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 resisted. What do you do? And he said, if you continuously meet that kind of resistance, does that resonate at all with our common situation in the United States of America today? Maybe. He said, what do you do? Friedman said, you run right over them. You run right over them. I don't know about you, but whenever I meet resistance, I always doubt myself. And so you and I need to pray in our own life to have the internal self-regulation and strength to have the courage of our convictions, and if they're godly, to insist on those in our community life together because they benefit everybody and they're important. And that's what Jesus is getting at today about that kind of discipline. It's both internal and external and community-driven. So think this, this week, when we're talking about scripture, tradition, and reason, think about how you can live a life that seeks to balance the, the letter and the spirit. And what does that really mean, you know? Give thanks for the opportunity to bring some integrity to your own relationships or to be an a, a, um, instrument of constructive change in the areas that you need to be in your workplace and in your family and in your friendships and so forth. And see if that, uh, that helps. Some people might ask, well, what, what, how could we say in terms of Christian discipline or Christian duty uh, what is it that we ought to be doing? And in the Catechism, in the Book of Common Prayer, there's an answer. It's maybe just the starting point. But if someone says, what is the duty of all Christians? The duty of all Christians is to follow Christ, to come together week by week for corporate worship, and to work, pray, and give for the spread of the kingdom of God. That's a good starting place. Amen.